Welcome to the first new episode of the Scripts and Scribes podcast of 2020. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and I hope you had a fantastic New Year's. We've got a lot planned for 2020, tons of new guests and regular weekly episodes, so be sure to stay tuned and subscribe by however you listen to your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, whatever. And if you enjoy this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating. It really helps us grow the podcast. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. Joining me today on the podcast is a writer and producer whose credits include Robot Chicken, for which he was nominated for two Emmys, uh, The Simpsons, Dawn of the Croods, Star Wars Detours, and the upcoming Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai. He's also the co-creator and showrunner of Harvey Girls Forever on Netflix, the fourth season of which premiered January 10th. On Netflix, he is Brendan Hay. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, honored to be on. Um, so it's 2020, the start of a brand new year, debatably a new decade. I don't know which side of the argument you fall into. <laughs> um, what are your New Year's resolutions? You got anything good? Um, I think it's the same two New Year's resolutions. One is new, one is old. I feel like every year my goal is to figure out a way to write without procrastination a little better because I always find myself it is like, the procrastinating ramp up time takes forever for me. And then once I actually hit my stride, I'm fine. But yeah, so I'm always looking for ways to cut that out and right. trying new things every year. Um, and then beyond that is um, the only other New Year's resolution is trying to use my phone less, uh, a little less screen time where possible. Thankfully, the new Apple thing tells you how much you use it per week. So I'm like, basically have like an ongoing debt <laughs> with myself to like have that number keep going down and with varying degrees of success so far. Right, right. Well, those are great resolutions. And I think one a lot of writers yeah. can empathize uh, with. Um, and speaking of writing, obviously, this is a writer's podcast. And you are uh, a writer of many skills who've, who's worked in many different mediums. Uh, what first got you interested in writing, you know, what, what is it when you sure. started first writing creatively, did you go, Hmm, this is something that I think I want to do and I'm good at and I enjoy. It's one of those things I actually have trouble remembering my life before wanting to tell stories. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I'm lucky in that I had a lot of encouragement in telling stories from my childhood onward, like from my parents at home, but also like I can remember back to like, Oh, like winning a contest for it literally back in first grade when I decided to write what I considered at that point a novel with nine chapters about my cat. Right. It was just, you know, basically nine pages, each with a, a little quick, a few sentences and a drawing. But it was, you know, it got recognition and I really loved it and kept writing and would do all the, you know, try to get all the little writing awards in elementary school type of thing and having fun with that. Um, and then as I got a little older, it became oh my God, I really love comic books and I wanted to be a comic book writer and artist because of the era of image comics. And I was just like super in love with, I mean, all the X-Men books, but then like when it's like Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, I'm like, oh my God, I want to be these guys. Unfortunately, I'm not a great artist. I'm good enough to communicate an idea, but definitely not enough to be a comic book artist. But I started realizing like, well, I can write. I love that part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing was also loving comedy and loving movies also so it's like oh, i'm gonna write like great comedy scripts or you know i had other points like i'm gonna try writing sketches and perform them and early on it was like oh i'm gonna be the artist or the director or the performer and by the time i was getting to college i started to realize like oh the one thing that unites all of this is writing so maybe i just actually want to be a writer especially because <laughs> that was the part that tended to go better than the performing part or the visual part so 
since then, it's just kind of been like, yeah, this is actually what I enjoy and just what I've been chasing ever since. Right. Well, and speaking of comic books, which you've also written, um, you actually got your, I don't want to say your start, but you, you actually, your first job from what I, I, I've read was working at a comic mm. book store, which was actually my second job was working at a yeah. comic book store. Oh, nice. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, how did that influence your, how did your love of comics sort of influence your writing and working in animation? Because they're similar, but they're um, different. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And one definitely has influenced the rest. Yeah, no, comics are, I mean, might even go back as far as anything that I've had a passion for and loved. Um, yeah, it was my dad bringing home a comic for me from the store across the street, like when I was like three or four. And it was, remember, uh, yeah. Do you remember what it was? Kind of, it was, it was um, kind of a weird DC presents that was Superman versus He-Man and which actually is before the toys for He-Man came out. So it was at that point, it was just like He-Man versus a barbarian, basically, <laughs> where I guess they were introducing He-Man in advance of the toys coming out. I learned all that part later. Oh. At the time, it was just this cool cover of like He-Man, uh, sorry, Superman wrestling a barbarian. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I made my dad read it to me, I think like a thousand times. So then it became... Um, every now and then just he'd bring back comics or we'd go across the street and buy comics at the little like card store across the street on like nice. the old spinner rack. And yeah, that's just where it all began. And yeah, I worked at a comic shop all through high school and the, where I think the comic shop helped was it expanded me out of, and there's nothing wrong with loving superhero books. I still read a ton of superhero comics, mm -hmm. but, um, working at the shop, especially because I was in the shop in the 90s, it introduced me to like, oh, here's Vertigo, here's gotcha. Box Office Poison, here's Strangers in Paradise. It like just opened up my mind of what comics and what storytelling therefore could be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for what how it helped me and influenced my writing now, I think it has, I think loving comics really helped me understand visual storytelling in a way that translates to animation in the sense of storyboards. Like, right. It's not just seeing things as like, oh, it's breaking things down into even more individual moments, like not just like, oh, a sequence, which could be very visual and stuff like that, but literally breaking it down to like, well, what are the elements of the sequence? What are the specific shots and drawings you will need? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just that thought process kind of it helps break it down further. Right, right. Um, do you, I, I also I did my research here. I also read we have one of the <laughs> a, a very similar favorite uh book or series the early i guess early for like the 80s 90s uh justice leagues the, the giffen and dimitaeus version oh my god justice yeah League, which is brilliant if you haven't read those they're they're amazing um yeah. anyway i just wanted to throw that out there because i think those are fantastic yeah. books and 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 we both have, oh my god yeah have no one of the it. best oh my god yeah no the giffen dimitaeus or Dematis, I'm never sure how to pronounce his name. I don't know. Uh, McGuire. Yeah. That run is one of my favorite things ever. And that's actually, I mean, I feel like it's also the other thing that comics of that era introduced me to was genre mashups. Oh. Um, so like that book, it's like, it's superhero action, but it's also as funny as a sitcom. And like, you know, you could have something in there where it'd be like, there's great, like just physical comedy and verbal comedy between like, all the Justice League members, but they're still having life or, life or death missions and it's still serialized, but then you have occasionally a standalone and it's stuff that TV and especially animation does a lot more now. But back then it was a little bit of like, okay, you're a comedy or okay, you're a serialized adventure and these things will never meet. But 
Justice League especially, and I think there's other comics also from that era, which like, you know, some of like the Garth Ennis works of the like mid nineties kind of like mashing things all together. And it's like, you know, you don't have to be in just one lane. Right. Absolutely. Um, And so how did you transition from writing creative creatively about your cat and wanting to be a comic book writer? How did that become writing, you know, and creating uh, animated series? Sure. So uh, in college, uh, I interned at Marvel Comics and was still really chasing, like, I'm going to be a comic book writer. I'm going to be a comic book writer. Started to realize, like, okay, maybe my day job, because, like, I can try to get into, like, working at Marvel, like, as an editor or some other part of the publishing process. And that um, didn't end up getting a job there, but met a good friend of mine now 20 plus years later, who um, I've gotten to collaborate with a few times. And uh, Tim Seeley, who went on from entering at Marvel at the same time as me, as he was a first uh, artist over at Devil's Do Publishing, and then uh, has been writing for DC and Image and Dark Horse and everybody for the last however many, 10, 15 years. But um, I got to do some comics early on with him, which were amazing. The first comic I did with him was something called Love Bunny and Mr. Hell, which mm-hmm. were these characters that he had, which is kind of um, very much in the vein of like Bed Edlund's The Tick, because both of us kind of bonded over that. And that was my first time doing comics. I'm like, oh my God, this is everything I want to do. It's just the quick realization I had was it's really hard to make a living just doing comics. Right. Um, it's definitely possible, but it's a lot harder. So the other thing, because I was going to, I went to NYU's dramatic writing program. So I knew I wanted to keep doing writing. And while I was there, I was doing, originally I was studying screenwriting and, um, in part it was like there's one TV writing class at that point because at that point in the late 90s it was just you could be a screenwriter or a playwright. Um, TV writing wasn't considered a major for writers at that point, oddly enough. Um, but there was one TV writing class and I loved it and I was like, oh, I actually really think I want to do this. And so one of the other internships I got while I was at college is reached out and got an internship at The Daily Show with John Stewart. And this was just after, relatively after John had come in after he replaced Craig Kilborn because the other thing I'd always loved outside of comics was comedy. So I was like, Oh, I love this show. And I even had like loved the old John Stewart show back um, in syndication before that. So I was super excited and working there. Uh, I was just an intern initially and then became a PA. And anyway, it also opened up my eyes. It's like, Oh my God, I love this. And yeah, thankfully after I graduated college, I was able to become a PA like a month or so after I graduated. So just kind of worked there then for seven years and um, did a little bit of everything in that time. I've started as a intern and a PA and worked my way up into eventually leaving as a producer. And anyway, the whole point is that in that process, I realized like, oh my God, I love writing comedy. And it wasn't until deep into the Daily Show run, but while I was there, I was like, okay, doing comedy Daily Show is my day job trying to write comics or pitch comic projects by night, wherever I can. And then through a weird set of circumstances, which I can get into in a moment, got a chance to write a freelance episode of the Simpsons. Hmm. And it was doing that where I finally realized like, Oh, right. Animation is the perfect intersection between comedy and comics. And I'm like, this actually feels best of all. This is exactly what I've been wanting to do. And I just hadn't put that fine point on it, but pretty much been with animation ever since without really looking back. Well, again, mentioning The Simpsons, how you got a freelance episode, um, how did that come about from working on The Daily Show <laughs> and, and 
again, your love of comics and that whole, how did that intersection actually lead to a job? Yeah. So yeah, this is, um, yeah, the, the daily show was a wonderful opportunity. And for, among the many things was through working at the daily show, I had a great opportunity to meet a lot of amazing people, not just people who worked at the daily show, but also people outside who just happen to be fans. And through a very random set of circumstances at one event, I got to meet James L. Brooks and he very kindly um, offered to read some of my writing. Um, wow. it was, yeah, it, it actually was. Yeah. So it was, I met his daughter first. She's like, Oh, if you ever want, I can pass your writing on to my dad. And you know, it's one of the things I took, I of course jumped on, but I was assuming like people are very nice. They say these kind of things. I'm not expecting anything of it. I actually got an email a month later from James L. Brooks. And I was like, Hey, really enjoyed your daily show reel. Um, you know, if you ever want me to pass them on to the Simpsons, let me know. Send me your spec or your pilot or whatever. Um, I sent him my, my name is Earl spec that I had at that time. Mm -hmm. um, he liked it. And next thing I was like, yeah, I'm going to pass it on to Al Jean. And like a month after that, I got an email from Al Jean being like, Hey, I liked your, my name is Earl. Do you want to come in and pitch for a freelance episode? And it was as kind of bizarre as that all was. It was this kind of random chance that all, thankfully they liked what they read. And I got to go out there and, yeah, learned that on, you know, it's very different than Daily Show, but, like, for a sitcom like that, they say, oh, we have, like, you know, three freelance spots a year, and we've been going, they've been going for so long, so, you know, usually if those freelance spots go to the script coordinators and other people on right. the crew, and because this has been running forever, they've gone through all of those, even for that season. So they genuinely do the old school thing of, like, bring in new writers who just give them a chance, because at the Daily Show as a producer, which... Um, I did some writing, I got jokes on the show, but a lot of my job was more of like, I was the person who took all the jokes picked by John, the head writer in the EP and kind of transformed it into a script, like adding the segues, making sure it all worked and flowed. So I was still looking to really break down and get like full on writing credits. Mm -hmm. So the Simpsons thing blew my mind and I got to go there for a week and like be in the writer's room and yeah, initially it was just pitched out stories. And uh, as I've talked to anybody else who's ever done a freelance there, they bring you in, you come in with like three or five episode ideas. I pitch them out after one of them. You're like, all right, this one kind of works. Um, you free the rest of the day? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, all right. So we start fleshing it out further and further. It wasn't until like the end of the day. I'm like, so is this happening? There was never like a moment where they actually say like, oh, you're going to write it. <laughs> it. It was just it's like, this seems like a great thing, but I'm not sure. I remember like calling my then girlfriend, now wife of like, I think I got this, but I don't know. It was like a secret call, like the lunchtime, like huddled outside a bathroom type of thing. Like, I'm not sure what's going on, but this is amazing. Um, and then, yeah, so the guys, they kept inviting me back for their whole rest of the week and fleshed it out and then went off and wrote the rest of it remotely and kept checking back in with Matt Selman there, who was beyond cool and helpful. And yeah. And then and it was just the best experience of writing that just hey, a humongous Simpsons fan, like another thing that just influenced me so much as a kid and wanting to be a writer but the other part of it also is like oh my god like this is the sense of humor and sensibility i love of like this mixture of so vi visual surreal gags and sharp dialogue and real stories like i'm i love doing late night and sketch shows but there is every now and then when you're doing them that you're like man i wish i could tell a real story and then right the reverse if you're working in a story where you're like man i wish i could just write a bunch of really hard jokes so it goes both ways but yeah, The Simpsons just was one of those moments where, like, this all feels so right. So after that, it was a case of, and also getting a little bit burned out. I love The Daily Show, but the schedule there is, 
truly a daily show. Like you hit burnout. So after seven years, I was like, I think I'm ready for something different and moved to LA and started pursuing animation. I mean, how crazy is that? Your first sort of Hollywood job was the daily show and your first yeah. actual like <laughs> script, like a uh, scripted show was the Simpsons. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. It was, beyond amazing um yeah no I, I could not have asked for better better setup on either one um yeah as i've had a bunch of times i've been very grateful of i've had a bunch of very surreal but amazing moments like that of yeah it, it would feel ridiculous if i scripted it <laughs> right um and it's yeah. funny because uh just talking about simpsons episodes how how prescient they are and i know your specific <laughs> episode which i, I rewatched before this um, I believe is, I, I don't remember the name of it, where they build a, a wall to separate Ogdenville. Yep. Is that what it's called? Ogdenville and, and, yep. and Springfield. Ogdenville, yep. Um, which, yep. again, is so prescient today. And everything that they do is, <laughs> is you know, it's it's like James L. Brooks and, and the Simpsons writers have, have uh, crystal balls or something. Um, did you it's come up with the, I crazy. The, the idea? Was that one of yeah. the pitches you came up with? Yeah, they, um, yeah, see, a lot of, I always joke that that episode is like, like 90% of my story made it through, but only maybe like about 2% of my dialogue. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, like, no, I pitched, this was, I pitched it back in, I want to say like October 2006, um, to give you a sense of the timeline. It aired eventually in 2009. Right. But, uh, um, yeah, because they were working that far ahead. But yeah, um, no, so even then, it was this crazy idea of like, oh, we're all arguing about immigration. So wouldn't it be ridiculous if like they threatened to build a wall to <laughs> solve that problem? And little did I know I was influencing future domestic policy. Um, it's insane. Really? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, yeah, they, yeah, they thankfully saw the satirical <laughs> humor in such an outlandish idea and were super on board with it. That, that was what they responded to. And, yeah, I think like some of the, again, a lot of the details changed along the way. Like I think originally it became that Ogdenville had like tainted barley. Mine was originally more of like a, a disease spinach kind of outbreak. And I had a whole weirder, or I had a more elaborate like ending that they very rightfully trimmed because it would, I think I handed in like a 40 page script. So <laughs> they, they made the correct cut. <laughs> um yeah, but, but but again, they were so smart about it all, so it was a, a blast. Uh, it was weird, the, like, three years in between of, like, I pitched and I wrote it, and, like, telling everybody very excited, like, <laughs> yeah, I wrote it the episode for Simpsons, and then, like, years passing, and it's like, like are you sure you did? Right. <laughs> I swear, it's getting made. <laughs> I got paid. I'm in the Writers Guild. Come on, believe right. me. That's, but, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. But, it, yeah, cause it was, yeah, pitched in October 06, aired in May 09. That's crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting how really two the two animated series, I guess two of the three. I don't know about Family Guy, although it's it's similar. But like The Simpsons and South Park, which are so in tune with cultural going oh God, on, yeah. cultural and social events, but yet what you're telling me like Simpsons was three, you know, they're two or three years behind, meaning they're they're working three two or three years, and then they'll they'll air the episodes that far you know, in the future, whereas South Park, from what I've seen, that's the documentary I saw, 
where I mean, they're literally oh, yeah. two weeks. They do an entire episode, and that's why they're so timely. Yeah, no, it, so it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. They're like, yeah, they're polar opposites of each other in that process. Yes, I remember talking to some people about South Park where it sounds. I mean, they made a documentary now, and that sums it all up. But yeah, that's a, writers and a crew and everybody working like yeah seven days a week during those seasons just to turn things around that quickly. The flip side is Simpsons was also. One of the other things that's appealing to me is seeing like, oh, this is animation the closest you'll get to like a actual nine to five, or at least it's like nine to six type of lifestyle in right. entertainment. We're coming from like the Daily Show, which is like, you know, eight to eight type of every day. Right. So it was like, oh, this this actually seems kind of nice. You guys, you actually break for lunch. You have this whole thing. It's it's pretty nice. Um, but that's it's all the more amazing. I feel like the Simpsons, they just really get in touch with what it what is relatable what everybody understands or what people know and therefore it somehow is still relatable even three years later or in weirdly prescient at times right um so how is writing animation different than writing for live action like you said you wrote a my name is earl spec early on in your career that got you the simpsons <laughs> job how is writing for animation different because they're different mediums, and, and you can probably get away with yeah. different things in each one than you can't necessarily in the other, or, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. I think there's a few different things. Um, one of them is definitely the types of jokes you can get away with. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, and again, it's, this has changed, I feel like, slightly over the years. Because you have, like, everything out of, like, the Carlock Fay camp these days is, like, kind of, like, live-action cartoon of sorts. Like, but for a long time it was, you can get away with more surreal, weirder humor in animation. Right. Um, you can, yeah, you can have a little bit more flights of fancy or things like that. The bigger thing in terms of like the actual nuts and bolts of writing, I always feel like is you have to be, and this is where I feel like the comic book stuff comes in handy. You have to have a greater awareness about what you are seeing at every single moment. Um, just because you are, it's it just, it's going to show up more <laughs> kind of thing. And again, it's like slightly different on, there are shows that, uh, animated shows that care a little bit less about that, where it can be more like, okay, it's a simplified background. They're not doing a ton of background gags and all that. But like something like the Simpsons or like things that I've tried to do on some of the shows uh, I've been on or run now is you have the chance to really fill every inch of the frame with jokes. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's not just the sense of that, like, okay, funny dialogue, funny scene, funny, physical things, but it's also like, what's the design of this character? What's the design of the background? What can we put up in the background? What can, like every, you can control every detail. And granted, you can do this obviously in live action also, but in animations, you're going to, you and the artist are going to be collaborating and building it all from ground up, no matter what, you really can run with that. And early on, there's a really good uh, director and board artist I got to work with named Eric Weiss. Um, and Eric Weiss, taught me on like one of the first scripts I ever wrote going through with a red pen and kind of doing the like, okay, what am I actually seeing here? Like asking for the questions to kind of get me more specific in my across the page. Mm -hmm. And that helped me light years. Like it really did just get me into like, Oh, there's yeah. Just thinking about the, what you're putting on screen. And cause also the other thing is this is a little bit more when you get into a producer, but like in animation, it's also always keeping in mind that like somebody has to draw it all also. So it is a sense of like, tracking what you're seeing for pencil mileage for the board artists or for your designers. So the more specific you can get, the more it helps everything. It helps your story. 
It helps the humor. It also helps the production. So I feel like that to me is the biggest actual difference because it's just, I recently had a chance to write a pilot and it was for a live action show. And I was blown away by that of like, right, I can have whole scenes where you just kind of started at the top of like, this is where they are. And it's mostly going to be dialogue with maybe a little bit of action. Right. Versus on a script, on an animated script, I don't think I ever go more than three lines of dialogue without checking in on the page what we're seeing. Gotcha. And how did you learn to write animation? Because I've read Simpsons scripts before, and I know they're very mm -hmm. much like a sitcom. Like you had said, they, it's not as much necessarily going on in the background. They're not as descriptive, at least yeah. the ones that I've seen. But I haven't really read as much like uh, traditional anime because The Simpsons really is much more of a sitcom, I think, although it's animated uh, than a lot of, of mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, animated shows. Um, so how did you learn, you know, the, the form? Obviously, you've done it a long time. You've, I'm sure you've picked up things along the way. But how did yeah. you actually learn when you're hired to write your first animated TV series? How did you learn to, you know, what what was necessary? on a page and how much more you had to, to give for the artists visually. Was it from that comic book background or um, did you pick it up from reading? I was say it actually was the comic book background. Oh, good. Um, it was, yeah, the comic books honestly pushed me more in that direction. So um, yeah, two people I got to work with super early on uh, who helped me a lot in comics. One was, like I said, Tim Seeley. The other one was a guy named Mike Norton. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the two of them are studio mates out of Chicago and, <laughs> uh, Mike wonderfully put me through my paces on an early, uh, I think it was like an eight pager for Love Bunny and Mr. Hell that I did that he was drawing. Um, cause I had, yeah, this, the script I gave him was of little to no use to an artist. <laughs> it was one of those, like just how it was written, uh, was yeah, very difficult. And he was the one who helped kind of break down of like, no, you have like people, you can't write like, oh, in this panel, he jumps up and throws a brick through a window. It's like, no, that's actually multiple panels. That's not something that would work in one panel. Right. Um, and I don't know if I was, if it was quite that bad, but there's enough things I had where I just remember when I, he replied initially an email with kind of like a, what's, what's wrong with all this. And then catching up with him when I finally caught up with him in person. Uh, and it, yeah, he just kind of took me through like, this is what's actually was needed on his end. And that kind of helped click in my brain. Like, Oh yeah, I have to actually think about who's getting this next. Not, like my grand artistic idea, but it's looking at this more as in comics and I think in animation, it's a little bit more of like, oh, I'm actually trying to make sure that the first person who has to understand this and like it and know what to do with it is the artist who's going to draw it. Right. So if you start thinking about almost the artist as your initial audience, and if you can't be clear to them, it's only going to get more chaotic down the line to your actual audience or your actual reader. Right. So doing comics helped me a lot because that's first started getting me in that brain set. The other thing is, um, I was really lucky. The first, the first animated show I was a staff writer on was The Mighty Bee at Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. And that had um, Eric Weiss, who uh, had great track record of uh, shows that he, he was one of the co-EPs. And he helped me a lot. But he also, the board artists and directors on that show, it's like, it was like a murderous row of talent of like people who have gone on to do great animation since. So it's also just I really lucked out of being on a great staff and learning so much from that entire crew. And thankfully, Eric and uh, his wife, Cynthia True, who was the other showrunner, they were the kind of showrunners who helped inspire the showrunner I want to be in the sense that they made sure that their entire crew saw every part of the process. 
So it was a case of that, like, I was lucky, like, oh, it's a lot of times I feel like in animation, and this happens, I think, on other shows, too, where it's like, writers are kind of isolated from the rest of production sometimes because you're somewhat on a different schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were the ones, like, the writers were at every storyboard handout. They were talking with the artists. They were seeing the uh, the board pitches, seeing every part of the process so they could learn it. And then similarly, it's like, I was going to the voice records with them. I was sitting down with design with them. So I would learn how to actually make a show and have all the different parts of production in my mind, at least in the back of my mind, when I'm writing. So... I think I just, again, in kind of keeping my good luck of <laughs> first gigs at different places, <laughs> having to be on a show with uh, some incredibly talented people. When you go to film school or you go to, you, you, you study screenwriting books, things of that nature, you learn the screenplay format, you learn what they look like. But obviously, like you, you know, we were talking about, animated scripts are a little bit different. Yeah. What other things do writers out there who want to focus on uh, writing for animation, for television or feature animation, what are things that they need to keep in mind? Other than obviously the format and the structure being slightly different, more visual, more information on the page. What are things that like writers who are interested in writing for animated uh, series and animated features, what do they need to, to think about? Um. I think one of the things, and this is going to sound like the most obvious thing ever, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Genuinely wanting to write for animation. Because I feel like there's a lot of times, I've seen a lot of funny comedy writers who sometimes are like, oh, it's an open gig. Sure, I want to write for animation. And specifically, even a little bit more so of like, oh, yeah, sure, I want to write for kids animation. And kind of just treating it as an interchangeable sitcom versus seeing it as, you do have to approach it slightly differently. And yet the visual element is the one thing. The other thing I point people to is just because there's a lot of different types of specific animation and like knowing just your, not painting or one broad stroke. Like you very accurately already put it like South Park is wildly different than than the Simpsons, which is wildly different than like adventure time, which is wildly different than um, regular show. Right. Uh, Just for like pulling them or Steven universe is very different from all those. Like, Mm -hmm. There's a there's a lot of different schools of thought within animation. So the biggest thing I would say to anybody who wants to get into animation is the same way if you were write, like, hey, I really want to write one-hour dramas, you would get more specific if you're meeting on a show. Like, I want to write on a show that's like Breaking Bad versus I want to write on a show that's like Chicago Fire. Right. So approach animation the same way and don't think of it at all. It's like, well, it's all kids animation or it's all animated comedy. It's like, well, there's still differences within that. So just doing your homework and just seeing that, like, okay, there's different rhythms and paces of a different type of show and knowing, like, which one do you really want to do? What feels most comfortable to you? Or there are shows that, um, you know, there's shows that have serialized character arcs and ones that don't. There's shows that are, you know, show like um, Bob's Burgers is very verbal dialogue driven. Verbal dialogue is an idiotic way for me to phrase that. But um, <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of dialogue humor versus something like, say, uh, Big Mouth, which has mm. tons of jokes and dialogue, but that's a show that's like, oh, they're going to go on like almost like little mini sketches within their stories. Right. And like complete like crazy tangents that are totally breaking fourth wall or breaking reality. So both are really great shows, but just knowing which one feels right to you. Um, I think that's the biggest thing I found of just sometimes when people are like, I want to try this. And it's like, just 
think about the next few steps beyond you want to try it because you should try it. It's a really fun place to work. Um, I think that and then just keeping track more of the visuals are kind of the biggest things that I've seen people not do from the get go. Right. Now, do does it help or I'm assuming it's not required. You, you would mention that you have sort of an art background or an interest in artwork um, and have, you know, created your, you know, co-created Harvey Girls. Does it help to be good at art, you know, to be an artist, so no. to speak? No. Okay. So it's a completely different Absolutely. I mean, I think it helps to have an appreciation for art. So you at, gotcha. least, at the very least appreciate all the work that's going to go into it. So I think the only time I've seen it be a problem is somebody who has no sense of it or no appreciation for it might basically kind of like just start to break a crew because they're asking too much of people. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, that's more of a human level rather than a writer level. Uh, I, yeah, I've never had to draw professionally in any capacity on any of my animated shows. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, now, uh, Harvey Girls Forever. The fourth season premiered yeah. recently, January 10th on Netflix. Um, supposedly the final season, maybe? Yeah, is it no. It is, the, it is the final season, barring some massive everybody in the world <laughs> watches and pounds on Netflix's doors. Um, yeah, no, otherwise it, it is. It's, again, in the weird ways of how animation works. We, I wrapped on that almost a year ago. Oh, I see. So... Yeah, it's uh, just the way the timeline works. And we're really grateful they give you, thankfully, both DreamWorks and Netflix are really good of giving shows a heads up of when they're going to end, or at least in my experience doing both Crudes and Harvey Girls, where we knew a good, going into kind of what ends up being our final season in both cases, they told us that. Mm. So it wasn't a surprise and we had time to plan a great ending, but also in both cases, we had a chance of like in the writer's room to be like, what is every idea you don't want to leave on the table? Right. So, yeah, to get it all in. So it wasn't a Futurama situation? No, gratefully no. <laughs> <laughs> For those who, who don't know, Futurama technically wasn't canceled by Fox. They just stopped getting phone calls, apparently. And then years later, they <laughs> yeah. get a call from Comedy Central. Hey, do you want to come back? I, I don't know. Anyway, um, no, that's great, though. Uh, very, yeah. It doesn't always happen that way, so that's fantastic. Yeah, and I think it is. That's um, weirdly enough. I feel like just to uh, to sell people on animation for work. Uh, in terms of practical things, yeah, there tends to be a bigger orders up front and more warning when you're going to end, just because it's a little bit more like it's a little bit more like running a train in the sense that it's like once you get momentum on animation, yeah, it, it's hard to stop and start again. So gotcha. it really has to be like, look, if you guys like this at all order a bunch so we can keep going for a bit and then give us plenty of time. So we don't just like abruptly crash and fly off the rails. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> what was the Genesis of Harvey girls? Cause I know you co-created the show and it's based on mm -hmm. the Harvey comic book properties, like little Audrey, little Lotta, little dot. Yeah. Uh, so what, um, yeah, it's, how did that come about? It's actually a pretty interesting or different process rather, at least for me. Um, so the genesis of the whole show actually comes from a wonderful exec at DreamWorks, uh, Beth Cannon. She, so when I was running Crudes, uh, Dawn of the Crudes, she had, she was one of my execs on the development for that, but she also was the one who was like, going back through the catalog of like everything DreamWorks owned, she was the one who found Audrey, Little Audrey, Little Dot, Little Lada. And she's like, man, I love these characters. I think there's really something here for modern audiences. It's just reinventing them, that kind of thing. So she was the one who really had this passion of like, there's got to be something we can do with this. 
Um, and while I was off doing the other show, she found a really great writer and artist, uh, Emily Brundage, who they developed the take together. They developed what would ultimately become Harvey Girls, uh, the show. Um, through other things, uh, Emily ended up leaving the project. So when it got to a place of, as Cruz was rapping, um, thankfully, Beth reached out to me, uh, and it was a case of like, hey, do you want to take a look at this? And I loved the Bible that Emily had put together and was happy to run with this. So I know I get listed as co-creator. It really is a case of I, I took over the series when it got into production, but all the development work was done by uh, Emily and Beth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just happened to love what I read. It was a case like, oh, this is a really queer show. Um, and part of it was really loving the characters of Audrey, Dot, and Lada. And just seeing, yeah, just these fully formed, incredibly funny female characters that we could just, yeah, there's just such a good engine just to their dynamics and personalities and just throwing them into any story and just seeing how they could react. So it was a blast. And I was also really fortunate of um, the co-showrunner who had helped develop it, um, who is still staying on the project, was Aliki Theophilopoulos, um, who her and I immediately hit it off. And uh, their art director, also Peter Emmerich and I, is a case like, oh my God, I just want a chance to work with these people because uh, Aliki came out of Phineas and Ferb and it's just an incredibly talented board artist and director. And Peter is an amazing art director who has uh, had assembled such an amazing team. So it's also one of those cases I started to see like, this crew is fantastic. I could not wait to just work with them. And that was kind of the whole, the whole chance of the show was weirdly low key in that there's a lot of people who just got along and had fun with the characters. Like it very strangely was the easiest show I've ever worked on because we all just kind of got along and had a lot of fun and just drew from our childhoods. And it'd be like, what's the real thing that happened? And then how do we turn that up to 11 for just a totally ridiculous story? Wow. That's great. Um, Again, another thing you don't always, you don't hear happen all the time. So. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's super rare. I consider myself lucky in that, most of the crews I've worked with have been good and I've gotten along with most people I've worked with, but to have this level where it was just literally like, Oh, we all, we all gel. We all sing is incredibly rare. Um, we do have a few listener questions. I want to throw your way. Um, the first comes from film major regret and it says for robot chicken, what is the writing process like for some of the very short skits? Are they sometimes longer skits that are later edited down to just one or two jokes? Because I know you've been, you know, wrote for sure. Robot Chicken for a long time. Yeah. Um, so Robot Chicken has a different writing process than any other show I've ever been on. And it's a show that, it's a process that in abstract sounds insane, but to their credit, I mean, they've been doing it for 10 years and it works for them. It is, <laughs> they found something that works for their show. So every day when you're on, um, when you're at Robot Chicken as a writer, they break it into these five-week cycles. And the first three weeks of every five weeks is every writer sitting in a room together, but not really talking to each other, just independently coming up with four to six pitches for sketches that are over two minutes or over, probably even over a minute. So like four to six pitches for any sketch longer than a minute. And then eight to 12 pitches for sketches under 30 seconds. Wow. And yeah, end of every day, these pitches get compiled in a packet. This packet gets read uh, by, so the way it used to be, I've heard it's changed since I was there. The way it used to be is um, the two EPs, Matt and Seth, the two head writers, Doug and Tom, uh, they would 
read the packet and vote on the sketches in the packet in front of the writers. So <laughs> the idea was supposed to be that you are getting a sense of what's working or not working, but it also feels frankly like the world's most tense game of apples to apples ever. Because right. everybody's trying to secretly push a sketch or push away a sketch, but without ever admitting what one's theirs or which one is somebody else's. It's, it's a very awkward process, but at the same time, again, it does work. And I have heard they've refined the process now to that the writers also get votes in the room. So it's no longer, <laughs> no longer just being passive observers, uh, which does sound more fun. But right. um, yeah, so that's it. So most of the short sketches come out of that process. There are definitely ones that it gets approved as like a minute long or 90 second sketch and gradually gets whittled down in the process to be two jokes. That totally happens. But it, more often than not, they are pitched as short sketches. Gotcha. Uh, the next is by at Intrepid Megan. It says, first off, I want to say that Audrey is just an amazing character in every way. Uh, not a question. But okay. <laughs> and my question is, what is your process for writing these distinct and varied characters on the show? Oh, and also, what did you have to do to take the pre-established Harvey girls and, quote, modernize them for the new series? Um, okay. Yeah. So uh, first off, love that he loves Audrey. She's always one of our writer's favorites and the easiest one for me to write. Um, so for the characters themselves, for developing them, one of the things I did when I came into it, again, thankfully, there's already really great groundwork on all of them. Something I do on every show for myself to kind of familiarize myself with the characters. And I really feel like, I feel like characters come alive the best and the jokes from characters come alive the best with specificity. Right. So I actually do um, a full, basically a list of all my characters' favorite things. Like I do like, what's their favorite meal? What's their favorite song? What's their favorite color? And it's not just like going for like an easy random answer, but like really trying to think. So remember like on Audrey's, it'd be like her favorite animal was some kind of ridiculous, I can't remember right now, like ridiculous, like fantasy creatures, like a unicorn bear hybrid type of thing. And like <laughs> her favorite music was punk that she sped up even faster because it's the only thing that keep pace with her heart, like that kind of a thing. Like mm -hmm. just trying to get super specific answers to, uh, like probably about like two dozen questions is what I'll do for all my characters to start getting into like, well, what's going to be their point of view on any given thing. Um, so that's the character part. And then for modernizing them, really our main thing, Audrey, we didn't have to do much to it all. Lucretia also from the old comics, we didn't have to do much to it all. Dot was a little one note because her main thing is in the old comics, she just loves dots. And Aliki and I in talking about it started to think like, well, maybe it is that she's really, it's just more of an obsessive personality in general. And then we started like pushing it further, like, well, obsessive can get also a little bit one note to me more like she's super precise and driven about everything because she sees like a dot as a perfect circle. And that's what she tries to aspire to. And so she still has this love of dots, but we let it become more of a fully fleshed personality that could give us different ways to approach her. Right. Um, and then one thing we had to change about Lada is in the old comics, most of her gags are food gags, <laughs> um, which were like, that seems wrong. <laughs> right. So we updated her to be a sense of like, well, she's got a great hunger and passion for everything in life. And if we could just bring like, turn that into, because the original comic, which she, one of the things that is really funny and charming about her in the old comics is a real passion for life. And it was like, well, we can bring that positivity and passion into everything else. Right. Instead of just food. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Right. We don't need her always eating a ginormous Dagwood sandwich. Right. Um, the next one is at Orange Cat 
67193. I hope I got that right. Um, for Harvard <laughs> Girls Forever, was season four meant to be the last one, or were there more seasons planned during production, which you've sort of already answered? Um, and yeah. were DVDs it, planned it to be made of the show as well? I guess, are there DVDs planned Ooh. for season four? No, no, I wish, but sadly, sadly, no physical media. Ah. Um, I will say one thing. Oh, season four is always planned to be the final season. The only thing you will see in season four was two kind of pseudo backdoor pilots uh, for a potential spinoff series, right. um, which Aliki and I kind of worked in there like, well, if there's any chance of either doing a Casper series or a Richie Rich Treasure Hunter spinoff, those, that was the only thing for beyond what we had planned that we would have liked to get to and didn't. And the funny thing is Richie Rich was my first comic book ever. Oh, cool! There was a comic shop near right. near uh, our place that had uh, like this—I don't know—it was four for a dollar or even five for a dollar or something like that. And there was just a bunch of Richie Riches and stuff in there and sad sacks. And I remember buying those as a kid. <laughs> um, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, they just threw a bunch of old stuff in there that I guess they couldn't move otherwise. Um, but that leads to the last question, <laughs> which is at Diane Cat ninety eight, which was asking for it said. It wasn't really a question, but it kind of leads into it. Crosses fingers and hopes that the podcast will mention that there might be more of Harvey Girls after the final season, which we say is highly unlikely at this point. Maybe. Yeah. Um, as well as possible Casper spinoff later on, which you would, had teased. So I guess you'll have to tell us if that happens or if that's... if Yeah, that's. Um, it, I guarantee you that if... if that ever comes you will definitely i will definitely be sharing that with the world on That's twitter right. um yeah it's we had the whole casper episode um that we did i think they can kind of see we created this whole version of harry boulevard which is where him and all the supernatural creatures live like basically that our goal for a casper spinoff would have been to base a show around that and we also had ideas of how to do wendy the witch if we were able to use her and things like that like so we had an idea for a show um, at, at the current moment. Uh, it doesn't seem like it is happening, but, you know, stranger things have occurred. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, great. That's all the time we have for this show. Thank you for coming on, Brendan. Really appreciate it. Um, I Yeah, thank you, Kevin. This has been a delight. And again, uh, yeah, fan of the podcast, so thank you. Yeah, and you'll have to come back if and when – well, your next project, obviously uh, – I'm I'm rooting for Richie Rich personally, but uh, um, <laughs> Bren, Brendan's Twitter is at b underscore hey. Um, do you have other social media that that we should shout out there? Uh, no, that is the only that's the, only, that's the big one. I only <laughs> yeah, I live on uh, Twitter. Um, Again, going back to that, try not to procrastinate. I should probably live less on Twitter. So, <laughs> as we should all probably. Um, so thanks, Brendan, for making time in your busy schedule and chatting with us. And as always. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.